Hello everyone, it's November 7th, 2023. So the Lucy spacecraft recently did a flyby of the asteroid Vinkanesh, and as it turns out, there's two of them. A tiny rock orbiting a little rock. It would seem that the asteroid belt is full of rock moons, not to be confused with moon rocks. Those are different. All right, let's get to it and lift off. And we've the tower. Welcome to episode 433 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So here's another uh, shuttle numerical trivia question. So please play along at home. So when the shuttle would launch, it would have to do its roll program and kind of point itself in the correct azimuth, right direction it wanted to go. And so part of that flipping upside down, that would happen pretty quickly uh, after takeoff. And what would actually trigger uh, that maneuver is how fast the shuttle was moving at the time. So at what speed in miles per hour is the shuttle roll program initiated? Oh, boy. <laughs> you said miles per hour? In miles per hour. I want to say 160. Yeah, it beats something like that. Chris in the chat guesses 250. Um, I guess I guess I'll split the difference and t- say 200 miles an hour. These are good guesses. I, I'm I'm trying to go with the wisdom of the crowd, but I feel like if anything, it's David's guess or lower. I feel like it's a pretty... It happened. The role program happens pretty darn early. It really does. And so it turns out it happens so early that it's actually at 87 miles per hour. Yeah. Which is surprisingly close to what it takes a DeLorean to travel back to the future. <laughs> 88 <laughs> miles per hour. But yeah, Damn. so that's an easy we number to remember. We were so close. <laughs> so close to but greatness. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Dennis. I really You're enjoy this. <laughs> cool. I got I to gotta try to find a new one. Lucy flies past Dinkanesh and also Dinkanesh. <laughs> um, yeah, so <laughs> this we, is so so we cool. get a two for one flyby, really. Yeah, exactly. So right, so so Lucy, the the mission is going up to the Trojan asteroids, both the Trojan camp and the Greek camp. And on the way, they have a couple of like practice targets that they're going to hit. Um, this is the first one, Dinkanesh. Dinkanesh is really lovely because it is the other name for the Lucy skeleton, like the Australopithecus skeleton. And Dinkanesh means uh, you are marvelous in Amharic, which is um, one of the like Proto-European languages uh, from the area. Well, it's not a Proto-Indo-European language, but what, it's a what is proto- it? No, it's a Semitic language. Yeah, yeah. Ethiopian Semitic. You're right. You're right. I was on the wrong right, side yeah, of yeah. the uh, of the Mediterranean. And like you know, Dinkanesh is not the only asteroid that's gotten a name because of the Lucy mission, right? There's also the asteroid called Donald Johansson. Yeah. And I feel like the the numbers, the catalog numbers that precede it are like right on the tip of my tongue. But when I tried to say them, all my brain said was 432. And there's no way that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but right. So um, Dinkanesh is an asteroid that happens to be in the right place. Um, it's pretty small. And they had to do a trajectory correction maneuver to get to it because because it was actually chosen as a target just last year. But it, it's, it's really lovely to have um, a good target that's actually better than we thought it was. Um, but right, so Lucy was originally planned to fly past seven asteroids for its main mission. Um, and then last year, they added Dinkanesh and two Trojans to get up to a total of 10. It did its flyby on November 1st. And like spoiler alert, it turns out that it's actually a binary system. There are two asteroids here. And so instead of flying past 
10 asteroids. Now Lucy's main mission includes 11. Uh, This flyby was very close and very fast. Its closest approach was 425 kilometers, that's 264 miles, and it flew past at 4.5 kilometers per second. Um, And what's really cool about this is that that's actually like Lucy's slowest speed right now, because this um, encounter happened very near Aphelion? Aphelion, yeah. Aphelion. It looks like it looks like Aphelion, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and of course, Dinkanesh is actually a, a a main belt asteroid. And so if this is as high as Lucy's getting, like that seems weird. It's because Lucy's not yet done its second, second or third, I think it's a second Earth flyby. Um, it'll do a gravity assist before it, you know, gets boosted all the way up to the the altitude of Jupiter and its Trojan moons. But even though it's not up that high, this whole trajectory is a really good like analogy um, for uh, its Trojan targets because it's, you know, looping up. It's not looping up as high, but it's still at the top of its loop and it kind of encounters the asteroid um, in a similar way that it will um, the Trojans. And like 425, or sorry, 4.5 kilometers per second is very fast. And this allowed the team to show off their terminal tracking system. The TTS is a a fancy bit of software and two cameras that allows the vehicle to autonomously track these small bodies that it's approaching. And that's really important in this case because these small bodies are very difficult to get good orbital uh, elements on. Like we can't lock in their their orbit very well. We haven't been observing them for very long. They're not very bright. And so we can get close, but we're looking at fairly large errors. I think um, I saw something like on the order, like 500 kilometers. And you know, if, if you're getting within 500 kilometers and you think that it's 500 kilometers away from where it should be, (laughs) um, (laughs) that, that really leads to some bad, um, bad camera pointing if you're not paying attention to the situation. And so, uh, TTS has, uh, two cameras that are on, um, the, the instrument platform that Lucy has that instrument platform can point and move. It's actually got a pretty large range of motion in one direction. Um, but there are two cameras. They are, uh, redundant, not stereo. Unfortunately, I think it'd be really cool to do stereo, uh, vision, uh, out in deep space. But, um, and so TTS is watching the asteroid for an hour or two on its approach. Um, but, it's pointing help doesn't like kick in until a few minutes before the closest approach. And so the way this works, it's a really cool flow that makes a lot of sense and shouldn't be terribly surprising. But some of these details, I think, feel really satisfying to me. So the first thing that happens is that uh, the stereo cam or the uh, the stereo cameras, the, the non stereo cameras, the cameras uh, hand an image uh, to a centroiding software. And what that does is it takes the image and it reduces it down to black or white, right? Not shades of gray. It's binary. Yes or no for every pixel. Um, And then it finds um, areas of light that are all touching and it groups those individual areas into blobs. So if you have an asteroid that has a 
black line running through the middle or something that's close enough to black that it gets split into splits the asteroid into two pieces uh, during that centroiding uh, process or during the, uh, the binary process, um, then the centroiding software doesn't care. It's still, those two are close enough. We're going to group them together into a blob of, of bits of light. Then it takes each of those blobs, those category, you know, groupings of, of areas of light and converts their pixel coordinates into an inertial direction. So it has to know the field of view of the camera and that kind of thing. Colin says stereo wouldn't be useful at those distance, but time separated stereo could still work. Totally. And honestly, this is basically time separated stereo because there's a common filter involved, right? Uh, but yeah, I agree. Stereo wouldn't be useful at these distances. And also the cameras are right next to each other. So these uh, inertial directions towards each of these blobs is handed off to another piece of software uh, called the state estimator. And the state estimator takes all of that data and it corrects the direction towards that blob using the angle of the sunlight. So th this isn't something they have to have turned on. I don't, I honestly, I kind of think they probably had it turned off for this pass because uh, they were passing on the inside of, of the Dinkanesh pair. Uh, so they were nice and fully illuminated. But I mean, if you think about approaching um, an asteroid and if the sun is way off to the right, you're just going to see a crescent. Or if you're on the far side of the sun relative to that asteroid, you know, you could have a really thin crescent. And so when they were doing their like simulations and modeling way before launch, they realized, yeah, this, this is a big enough issue that we need to correct for it. And so one of the things that the state estimator does right away is if it's coefficient of adjustment, like you can change a dial at how strongly it'll, it'll adjust uh, for the angle of the sunlight. But assuming that that's activated, it will uh, model a sphere in the location that the asteroid is in and like move it sideways until the the illuminated portion of the blob lines up with the illuminated portion of the sphere. So this is, this is rough because nothing's actually spherical. And so, you know, it's not perfect, but like without better knowledge of the shape of an asteroid, this is a really good way uh, to handle things. The alternative, I, I guess, would be trying to see the dark portions of asteroids. And that's just really a, a bad situation uh, to try to correct for. You, you can't see it. And because, uh, Asteroids are so dark. And since you need a really reliable piece of software, breaking things down into a binary image is a really good way to get rid of all the noise. And there's no real way to differentiate between the dark background of space and the dark face of your asteroid. So assuming that everything is a sphere is actually really not a bad way to do things. And like I said, it's, it's got this coefficient. So you could say we're going to more strongly adjust towards, you know, where the center of mass would be if this thing was a, was a sphere, or you can say, let's only adjust a little bit. And I imagine they're probably going to wind up playing around with that a little bit on their first uh, couple of times that they're using it. Again, I'm presuming that they're not using it this time around. I'm not uh, confident. So then uh, the state estimator uses um, a really simple extended common filter. So common filter would be the simplest. This is an extended common filter. No clue what that means in math terms, but it's 
it's nothing fancy. And they run all their data through the Kalman filter and they come up with uh, a position of the object center of mass. And so then the state estimator has more or less done its job and it passes off what is essentially instructions on how to correct the pointing of the instruments. And it hands that off to a target reference generator, which I think is collecting all of the possible targets uh, and picking one and going with it. I, I'm not sure. There's a, a really nice uh, article uh, that'll be in the show notes um, that actually talks about the target tracking system in a little more detail. And one of the things that they just like mentioned once and then never <laughs> admitted it existed ever again uh, was the target target reference generator. Now, one thing like NASA's science communication teams are the best in the business, right? Like they're very, very good at what they do. And I think they missed a trick here because the software team, the the guidance team actually wrote a separate state estimator after Lucy had launched, I believe, um, that was specifically tailored uh, towards recognizing binary objects. I believe it was in use, but I wasn't able to find uh, any clear statements that it was. But I think it was in use, and I think there's a possibility that they actually wrote this new state estimator specifically for Dinkanesh. I don't know how much time they had uh, ahead of time to be able to do that. But what's it's kind of cool because these state estimators are all in software. Um, I would bet that they're using uh, an FPGA. You know, it's very fast, very good at processing data. And so maybe they're, you know, shipping up new FPGA firmware and they've got a reliable way to flash it. Um, or, you know, maybe it's a, it's more traditional software, but they can kind of swap this stuff in and out. And it's, it's very cool to live in modern times where, you know, you don't have an eight deck or, uh, an eight track, uh, tape player holding and playing back <laughs> your data, right? Like we get to do really cool things today. So the terminal tracking system is great, right? It is telling uh, the the spacecraft how to keep its cameras pointed at the object. But there's like another layer to this encounter that I had no idea was part of the spacecraft design. And uh, there, there's a video, we'll have um, a link to it in the show notes. Um, it's th- at the uh, lucy.swri.edu uh, link. And this video... Uh, I'll, I'll jiffify it and, and put it in the show notes, but this video shows um, approximate heading angles for both Lucy and Dinkanesh, and then has a couple of arrows showing the uh, spacecraft's motion relative to Dinkanesh, as well as the directions to Earth and the Sun. And the video starts out with uh, Lucy kind of at uh, like a 20 degree angle or something so that it's solar rays are pointed pretty close to the sun and it's high gain antenna is pointed pretty much at earth and Dinkanesh is like off to the right. So it's, it's tipped down a little bit. It kind of looks like uh, an FPV drone, right? Where they have their cameras tipped up a little bit so that they can lean the drone forward and get the camera to look at the horizon. But as the satellite passes Dinkanesh, Dinkanesh swings down below the spacecraft and the whole spacecraft pivots uh, and rotates uh, close to 180 degrees as it follows Dinkanesh from being in front of it to being behind it. And that puts it in a situation where its solar rays are pointed away from the sun. And what it then does is the spacecraft flips back 
to point its arrays at the sun. And while it does that, its instrument pointing platform tips down relative to the spacecraft so that it it can keep those cameras pointed at Dinkanesh while the rest of the spacecraft rotates to get sun coverage. Isn't that the coolest thing ever? That really it is, is very cool. <laughs> Although it, it makes me wonder why, and maybe it just didn't have the time to figure this out or whatever, but why didn't it just rotate the camera itself in the first place and not the whole spacecraft? Uh, I believe it's because the platform cannot slew fast enough. If you watch, it's the spacecraft rotates to follow Dinkanesh past very quickly and then comes back slower. And so I think the platform mm. just, it doesn't move that quickly. Right. So during the flyby itself, they can't just spin the uh, the platform toward, to follow Dinkanesh. You got to spin the whole spacecraft. And then once you're done with the flyby, then you can slowly rotate the spacecraft back, which is all motions relative. So technically, it's kind of like you're moving the platform again. Right. So think about changing the shape of your spacecraft because the, the instrument platform is not a significant portion of the whole spacecraft mass, but it is some of the spacecraft mass. And so if you're moving the center mass around and, you know, nudging the, the rotation, right. I'm trying to remember it. Your, your, um, angular momentum stays the same for the spacecraft as a whole, but because you're moving this one thing in an arc, um, conservation of momentum says that the whole thing is going to have, uh, uh, a reaction in the opposite direction. And so like if you, when they are moving that platform, they are having to use their RCS to keep pointing their rough pointing, right? The platform itself can do the fine uh, pointing, but like, yeah, you, you know, you might be able to, to move these motors pretty quickly, but like, it's going to move the whole, like the whole spacecraft is going to vibrate and the RCS thrusters might have to be firing more often than they normally would. Yeah. I suppose that makes sense, especially when you consider that the rest of the spacecraft is going to want to rotate in the other direction. So I guess you would need to be using gyroscopes on board or, you know, like reaction mass and like in order to keep it stable. But if you're just moving the whole spacecraft, that's just one mass that you have to worry about, not two masses, you know, that are like moving like relative to each other. Well, and the cool thing is like, you're going to lose your star trackers, right? They're going to lose their fixes. Mm -hmm. But at this point, the vehicle is using the target asteroid as its main reference frame or its main source of, of pointing information, point pointing facts. And so like with other vehicles, you would really care about your star trackers, but in this case, you don't care. You're, you're looking at the thing you want to look at who cares what the rest Mm -hmm. of the universe is doing. (laughs) Um, So it's a, it's a fun, like subtle and weird uh, situation. So they spotted that this asteroid was a binary pair. This is actually the smallest main belt asteroid that we've ever seen up close. And then it turns out it's actually smaller than that because it's a main and a, and a moon. So like the actual mass of the, of the satellite went, or the actual mass of the main asteroid went down when we got close to it. Uh, so quite a spectacular target choice in the show notes. We'll have, um, a really good photo, um, that LaLaurie took the, the camera, uh, uh, took a, of the asteroid pair, um, with the, the smaller asteroids starting to peek out around the backside of the main asteroid. And we'll also have a GIF, um, that was taken on approach. And David, you saw this GIF and you're like, huh, I wonder what the, what the period of this smaller moon is. 
And I was like, well, all you have to do is count frames because these frames are 13 seconds apart. And in this GIF, um, the moon moves from just below into the left of the main body to way out on the right. It looks like it's getting close to its full distance. Maybe it's like you know, a third of the way there, uh, maybe like half of the way there, I guess it's not pretty close if it's only half. And you went, no, there's no way that these are 13 seconds apart, these frames, because it's moving too quickly. These bodies are too light to be able to orbit that quickly. And I, I was like, yeah, and we got to wait until the show for me to tell you why your instinct is correct. And at the same time, these are 13 seconds apart. And you guessed it, like, right away. Uh, well, yeah, so the answer, of course, is that the spacecraft itself is moving. And so, you know, that's why it looks like these two rocks are moving quickly with respect to each other. But, you know, they're not. It's just a perspective thing. So it's just, a, you know, yeah. the spacecraft is flying by at, what, 400 miles an hour or something like that? Oh, it is flying past at 10,000 miles an hour, 4.5 kilometers per second. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 400 right. is the distance. the distance. Yeah. yeah, it's fast. It's fast and it's close. So the closest to which was 425 kilometers and you're going 10,000 miles an hour, then yeah, that's how much of a difference you can see. I mean, yeah. it doesn't take long. I mean, 13 seconds, you're already on the other side of this thing, you know, which yeah. is, I mean, and that's at a distance of 400 miles. That's just, or I'm sorry, 425 kilometers. Yeah. But yeah. That's, yeah. It's kind of hard to make distances and speeds like that make sense because right. uh, it's not something that you usually deal with on a daily basis. It puts a bullet <laughs> to shame, right? Yeah. Very cool. So this pair has been compared to Didymus. Um, and seriously, Didymos and Didymoon. I refuse uh, to give the moon any other name than Diddy Moon because it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, it, it, it's cool. Like, I'll bet that there are a lot more binary um, asteroids out there than we would imagine. Just like this one, we couldn't tell that it was a binary until we got really close to it. Everything is settling out. The, the main belt is not as dense as science fiction depicts asteroid belts, but it's really dense. Like there's a lot of rocks out there. There are a lot of opportunities for two masses to capture around each other. You know, I, I, I think I, I was just reading recently that binary asteroids are thought to be quite common and binary Kuiper belt objects as well. Um, and, and not so much that they necessarily need to have it be a capture so much as just the way that they form near each yeah. other. Yeah. That's um, a good point. But, yeah. And you know, out in the, the Kuiper belt, like the really far stuff, you'd expect it to happen even more often because the relative gravity from the sun pulling you into, you know, an orbit is just so much lower. The The masses near you can be more dominant. You haven't yet said what the orbital period of this little rock is, have you? <laughs> oh, no, I'm not. I'm not sure I know. Let me see. Here, uh, Wikipedia, 50-hour uh, period. Oh, this is the rotation period, uh, 50 hours. So, And you'd, you'd imagine that they're tidally locked, so it's probably pretty close. So while, while you're looking for that, we should have a, a better idea after Lucy or after yeah Lucy's data is processed because um, that binary state estimator that I talked about one of the things it does is it actually calculates the orbital characteristics in that reference frame of those two bodies um, so that the pointing judgment can be more solid like that's really cool that you're observing two tiny tiny bodies uh, way out in the middle of nowhere. And as part of your automated tracking system, you're doing the math to figure out like where they are relative to each other and, and how they 
um, how they move. It's just, <laughs> it's really cool. Com- computers mm-hmm. are awesome these days. So that just made me think of something. You, you said that they're probably tidally locked. Now, would it not be the case that they would have to be tidally locked? I don't know. I mean, it depends on how long they've been there. Well, I'm just mean like in order to be in a stable orbit for something that small to orbit something else that small. I mean, because I'm just trying to figure out how that works. Um, it seems improbable to me. I don't know why. That's just my intuition. The tidal forces from the sun will be pretty strong. I don't know if they're stronger than the tidal forces from the parent body. But I, I, I don't know if, if I would be on board saying it has to be. We could ignore the sun in, in terms of trying to figure out whether or not these will be tidally locked to each other. That's just a matter of just... And so the tidal force is... So yeah, so the reason why the moon is tidally locked to the earth and the earth hasn't locked the moon yet, but it will in you know tens of billions of years is because of the stronger force of gravity on the... Uh, that the Earth exerts because of its greater mass. And so so something like Pluto and Charon, they're both tidally locked to each other uh, because they're both more similar uh, in terms of masses. Um, obviously, Pluto is bigger, but not as much bigger as the moon is compared to the – or sorry, as the Earth is compared to the moon. So I guess it, it kind of – I don't know. I feel like it would be something you'd have to kind of just do the math on because yeah. them being close should also work because the whole thing is that the when you look at Dinkanesh, it is very, very much, and its moon, they're very much not spherical. <laughs> right. And that's what's confusing me. <laughs> yeah. So there is a line through them that has more mass and that like would yeah. be the line that they both would want to naturally gravitate towards and have that long right. axis. Uh, and that, that's other. what it appears to be as well. Um, and what's interesting is like they've talked about these rubble pile moons like uh, Diddy Moon as well, probably being formed by the parent body getting spinning too fast and just shedding off mass. Um, and of course, it, it spins up due to the best named orbital dynamic effect of all time, the YORP effect, which has to do with is it it's not photons that are spinning it, right? It's the it's as it cools, as it rotates away from the sun. It's their volatile compounds that are spraying off of it and spinning it up faster, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 related the same reason why uh, uh, two p.m. is the hottest time of day, because mm. you know even though the sun is not overhead anymore, it's still getting a lot of light, and so it's going to be warm. So it's it's infrared photons, not not um, volatile compounds. Correct. Necessarily. And so the, the the upshot is that the hottest part of the asteroid is going to be aimed either in the prograde direction yeah. or the retrograde direction. And that's that, you know, it's going to be 2 p.m., you know, a couple, you know, it's, it's going to be that angle ahead or uh, behind relative to the sun. And so as a result, it either will spin you up or spin you down relative to, yeah, depending on just which direction it's spinning relative to its uh, velocity vector. Does that make sense? I feel like that was a very clumsy way of saying it, but... <laughs> no, 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 that, that was good. There, there are two different effects... There's the Yarkovsky effect, which changes the um, the orbital speed of a body, and then there's the Yorp effect, which changes its its spin. And I think the Yorp effect relies on non-spherical bodies. You have to shed photons preferentially forward or backward relative to your spin direction, and then the Yarkovsky effect can slow you or s- 
speed you up in your orbit around the sun. Okay, because the Yarkovsky effect is the one I was describing. <laughs> I realize now <laughs> I wasn't describing. They're Yorp. <laughs> very closely linked, right? Like the Yorp effect is the Yarkovsky effect with lumps. <laughs> hmm. um, so, yeah, it's it's very cool. These these small bodies they they seem like they could be really boring, but they never are. Even though this thing is shaped like you know two cones, like it's it's shaped like like pyramids, um, or like a top, and which looks very much like uh, the asteroid Bennu. It doesn't matter. It's still interesting. It's it's its own different thing. This tiny low gravity world. I I love it. Um, mm-hmm. By the way, Dinkanesh's uh, catalog number is one five two eight three zero. They have not yet named the moon. Uh, Dinky Moon, I would suggest, is a very good name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's good. I like it. Um, So can you tell us about their thrusters, Dennis? Yeah, sure. Aerojet Rocketdyne uh, put out a release after this flyby. And whenever we hear about them, I always think of the RL-10 rockets. uh, The classics. um, Yeah, yeah, classic. You know, been on a million different types of centaurs (laughs) over the decades. And indeed, since Lucy was launched on an Atlas V, so that RL-10 was part of getting uh, Lucy to orbit. But um, they also were talking about uh, just that they have these small thrusters on, on board as well. Uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, I, I don't really think of Aerojet Rocketdyne as having, you know, a lot of uh, small uh, monoprop thrusters, but they do. <laughs> and they they have a whole uh, catalog of different types. On Lucy, so part of getting as close to Dinkanesh as it could with its, you know, uh, trajectory corrections, it has uh, eight MR-103J thrusters, which are a fifth of a pound force thrust. And then it has six MR-106L thrusters, which are five pound uh, five pounds force thrust. And so those six ones uh, with the uh, little chonkier, those are the ones for like trajectory corrections, while the uh, other eight are for uh, attitude control. And yeah, they're, they're hydrazine monoprop. They've got a 230 second ISP. <laughs> they're a little over seven inches in length. So they're pretty darn small. And and half of that is basically like inside the spacecraft bus. So they're really like small little things sticking out there. But I guess that's, you know, what you want from little tiny thrusters. It's pretty cool. Uh, you, you talked about Lori before, which has the L sitting in front of Lori because Lori was a, uh, you know, uh, an instrument on New Horizons. And so they took a couple of them, right? Ralph, I think, is another one that mm-hmm. uh, was on New Horizons and also made it to Lucy. So there's La Ralph as well. So in addition to that heritage, there's also uh, some heritage from the Aerojet Rocketdyne thrusters on Lucy because uh, a different class of MR-103 thrusters, uh, the MR-103Hs, were on New Horizons. And so, uh, which, you know, is still flying <laughs> and might have to use them a little bit. I don't know. But yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, they were very proud, the company, of, you know, being able to have this spacecraft basically nail the flyby and do such a good job and that being able to thrust your spacecraft where you want it to go is a big part of that. Pretty cool. I'm very happy about this. I didn't see this in the news until you brought it up, Dennis. So (laughs) I'm very excited. All right, so let's just do two short and sweets this week. Ben, what is the first? Okay, first up, Starship aims for a mid-November launch. 
The second launch of Starship is targeting mid-November, currently awaiting approval from the FAA. The FAA has approved the safety review portion of its license. However, the environmental review portion must also be completed by the Fish and Wildlife Service before the license is granted. This review will assure that SpaceX operates within the requirements outlined by the updated biological assessment under the Endangered Species Act. Next up, iSpace Hops. China's privately funded iSpace conducted a successful test hop of its Hyperbola 2Y first stage test vehicle. The Hyperbola is a methane-fueled Falcon 9-style first stage. The flight lasted 51 seconds and achieved an altitude of 178 meters. This test will contribute to the development of the Hyperbola 3, a medium-lift launch vehicle with a reusable first stage. Hyperbola 3 is expected to make an orbital launch in 2025 with a relaunch of the same first stage in 2026. That's making really good progress. All right, so let's move on then to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, this week we do have some winners. We have four of them. We have Saikov, the Greek, Leon Running Man, and Uncle Willie, and they all got the they guessed the correct event for the right reason. <laughs> <laughs> and the clue was mission extension of four point seven meters. Mm. And uh, what was that event? Yeah, so uh, I guess my last two twisifs uh, were uh, the hypergall spill on Columbia. So shuttle-related, and then mm -hmm. uh, uh, Russian-related, the Soyuz coming in headfirst. So I thought, why not uh, combine them both? And so this event was the 12th of November, 1995, and it was the launch of STS-74, which was the second shuttle mirror docking. So not really much to say before the launch itself. Uh, one time it was, uh, you know, scrubbed due to bad weather at a TAL site, which is always a bit, you know, disappointing. Like it could be beautiful and lovely uh, at the Cape and you're ready to launch your shuttle, but because there's some bad weather in like Spain or Morocco, it's like, yeah, well, we're not going to be able to go to orbit today. And so, uh, but ultimately, uh, this was a good old OV-104 Atlantis, and uh, it did take off uh, on the 12th of November. While the launch was nominal and fine, um, just some interesting things I had read in some of the, uh, the, the press kits and whatnot is that they always were having, right, obviously, the, this uh, issue with uh, hits on the the TPS, the thermal protection system. And that's been going on since forever until ultimately, you know, there was a really bad hit on the carbon-carbon leading leading side of the one wing, uh, which doomed Columbia after this, um, almost a decade after this mission. But um, STS-74 in particular took 116 TPS hits, including 21 that were greater than one inch in size. And so I kind of hate that even during like totally fine operational missions that they were still like having this happen all the time. Another kind of uh, issue that had happened was that to keep, uh, I guess, weather and bugs and whatnot out of your RCS ports, they would put these little uh, Tyvek paper covers on there. And then once they would launch, those would eventually just get torn off. They had like little sleeves that the air would go in and help rip them off. Um, unless they were covering uh, some of the RCS near the uh, rear of the rocket, in which case, if they're too close to the SM, uh, SSMEs firing, that's that vibration is enough to go and just tear through the paper covers. So um, it's always fun to watch those just basically explode um, whenever uh, uh, the, the main engines start firing. But apparently some of these paper covers at the, the front end of the orbiter had, uh, quote unquote, damaged uh, some of the kind of like ring tiles uh, that go around the perimeter of the windows. And... Um, damage can mean a lot of different things. I'm guessing there was just some scuffs uh, that had happened there. But uh, in any event, launch though was fine. Uh, it was just a crew of five, all uh, military people. 
Uh, Ken Cameron was the commander. He was uh, a Marine Corps guy. Uh, they also had, you know, three other uh, NASA astronauts that were uh, Air Force people. And then um, the fifth uh, uh, member was uh, good old Chris Hadfield, uh, who, of course, is Canadian, but he is part of the, uh, I guess, the Canadian Air Force, the uh, RCAF, or Royal Canadian Air Force. Uh, aside from the Marine, who was the commander of the mission, they were all Air Force people of their respective countries. So in any event, like I said, they're going to be heading to Mir. So what does Mir look like right now? Well, Mir in general, uh, right, just to remind you, uh, or if you never really thought about its shape, it has basically a long axis with most of the modules uh, connected, uh, including the long axis of the, the core module or the base block. And then at the one end, there are a bunch of uh, radial ports uh, at the end of the, the base block that you know, you ultimately would have, you know, these four ports, radio ports, and you'd have four modules sticking out of them. Now, at this point, only three of those ports were filled. Proroda, uh, which would uh, fill it out, uh, wasn't flown yet. And so it kind of had this, uh, I don't know, T-shape to it in, in the radial uh, direction. On the other side, opposite where uh, the Crystal and uh, Kavant 2 and these other you know modules are, on the other side where Kavant 1 is along the main longitudinal axis, they did have their uh, cool little uh, girders uh, 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 sticking out, which is pretty cool. Um, so Rapana and Sephora, where uh, Rapana was the shorter one and was used to like test some certain things, like you know experiments and things like that. If you want to put it in an experiment away from the mirror modules themselves. You could put it at the end of this uh, this little scaffolding, um, and then Sephora, which actually had a little thruster pack at the end and was used to like do some tests uh, for that. So yeah, just to give a little context, of what Mir looks like at this point, and this is uh, kind of the name of the, this mission is uh, you know it, it's all about not just Mir itself, but also the International Space Station, right? Which was kind of agreed on and figured out at this point, and so um, a lot of uh, what STS seventy four did, a lot of its tests. And experiments were all about, you know, structural type tests uh, related to, you know, space stations. And so, you know, being docked and then using your thrusters in certain ways and measuring kind of how the structures interact and behave and all that stuff. And so that's kind of uh, the, the context that all this is taking place in. Now, the first two Days of flight were kind of standard. You know, you get on orbit, you configure the shuttle, you start powering things on. Uh, you do a couple of rendezvous burns to get towards uh, uh, Mir. They did a cabin depressurization uh, in case they had to do a, an emergency EVA. They would be able to, you know, do it much more quickly. So they would uh, decompress to uh, 10.2 PSI, which, you know, is, is fine <laughs> uh, for people to like breathe and be okay in. But um, it's, it, it gets you a little closer to, you know, being able to uh, depressurize the airlock if you needed to do a, an EVA. And so uh, it was really flight day three that the most interesting thing happened. And the primary objective of this mission was to deliver the uh, docking module or DM. Uh, which in uh, Russian uh, is called the uh, Stikovachny Atsek, or SO. Now, the docking module, if you want to know what it looks like, it's an orange ROSVET, uh, pretty much, right? ROSVET is the module that's currently on the ISS. It was the home to the radiator that is currently leaking on the ISS uh, until they finally could get Nauka and the European robotic arm to grab that radiator and have it go and spray coolant all over the rest of the station. But in any event, uh, the, the docking module, even though it was launched on the shuttle and was actually the only payload 
uh, only module to ever uh, of Mir to have been brought up there uh, via shuttle. All the rest were launched on protons, but um, it was a it was a Russian module. It was it was built by RKK uh, Energia. It, so it's it's four point seven meters in length. It's got an aluminum alloy uh, for its uh, frame and structure, uh, and then it has uh, a micrometeoroid shield. Uh, around it, as well as uh, I'd never heard of this type of uh, insulation for uh, spacecraft or space modules, but the what they call a screen vacuum thermal insulation. Have you guys heard of that one? I mean, it sounds like something that winds up being really simple, but has a fancy name. I mean, it's doing the same stuff <laughs> as, you know, multi-layer insulation, but I guess it's just a, a different type of material, I suppose. And one thing that's interesting, I I don't think I actually known what the uh, inside of uh, Rasviat looked like, but um, if you look at the inside of that module or the docking module for Mir, it doesn't have that kind of uh, tubular shape because of these kind of internal uh, compartments that are there. And so it, it just has, you know, it's got a blocky interior where you've got these two walls that look like they're kind of squeezing you like it's kind of nightmarish i wouldn't go into these Mm -hmm. modules at all um Mm -hmm. it's kind of like if you ever watch any of those tours of the iss when they're in the uh, the u.s segment and it just looks like a big spacious you know space station and then they crawl through that they get to the russian orbital segment they crawl through that narrow tunnel (laughs) and then even when they're beyond the tunnel yeah zarya is like it is tight and it's a tight space and so uh on the outside um, it has uh, uh, APAS-89 docking um, devices. <laughs> I'm blanking on the word. Uh, uh, docking systems. Um, and so those right stand for uh, uh, androgynous uh, peripheral uh, attached system. And so these are ones where they, uh, you know, either side can kind of actively or can dock to the other side. You don't have to have a, uh, a probe and drogue kind of setup where uh, one will always be the passive member of the connection. And uh, and just for num- uh, for labeling, uh, ultimately, this docking module would go on to, uh, would attach to Crystal. And so uh, APAS-1 would be what attaches to Crystal, while APAS-2 would be the one that attaches to the orbiter. And so they're at the two ends of this, you know, cylindrical uh, module. And then another thing that uh, uh, always jumps out at you when you look at it is it's got this striking orange color to it. But then it's got these two white boxes on the sides. And so, uh, mercifully, I, I was expecting this to be one of those uh, bunny holes that I go and spend like, you know, two hours just trying to figure out what the heck is in these. Um, but mercifully, that was not the case. And a lot of links told you immediately what was in those two white uh, uh, boxes because they really jump out at you. And uh, in particular, what they were were uh, a pair of solar arrays that um, were going to later be uh, installed on a, a mere spacewalk uh, in the future. But this is how they were brought up to the uh, to the space station. And so uh, the one was called the Mir Cooperative Solar Array, and it was a, uh, a, a joint venture uh, between the US and Russia. So they both contributed to building it, and so that's why it was called the Cooperative Array. And then the second one uh, was just uh, a straight-up Russian uh, solar array. And uh, Mir had issues with power um, for a while, uh, even before <laughs> one of the modules went and got a spacecraft slammed into it, and then it really had p- problems with power. But um, so, yeah, having solar rays on board was always going to be kind of they could always use more power, essentially, I guess, for the station. And uh, yeah, so that's that's a little bit about the docking module. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, according to some sources, an earlier iteration uh, wound up getting built and ended up as peers. 
um, the, the, you know, uh, airlock that uh, wound up on the space station for uh, a long time and has since been deorbited to make uh, room for uh, Nauka. Poisk is the one that's still there. And then um, a later iteration uh, of the docking module, like I said, it, it looks like an orange Rosviet, but that's actually uh, got the causality backwards. Uh, Rosviet uh, is a white docking module, Mir docking module. And so it's basically identical. And so uh, a little piece of Mir uh, does still live on the uh, International Space Station to this day. Now, the reason why they wanted to bring this docking module is that, so there had been a few shuttle Mir missions. Technically, the first one was just bringing Sergei Krikalev into orbit on a shuttle. Like it didn't go anywhere near Mir or anything, but just the fact that you had a, a cosmonaut flying on a shuttle mission that was that was a shuttle Mir program flight. Um, and then they had uh, one shuttle that flew towards Mir, but didn't actually dock with it. It just, I guess, went and said hello and then flew away, showed that we could rendezvous with the station, no problem with our orbiter. And then they finally did dock um, and drop off uh, Norm Thaggard. Um, and so this was the second time that uh, the shuttle was going to dock with Mir. But uh, for that previous one, they had to dock along the long axis of Mir, okay, not along any of those radio ports just because there wasn't enough clearance with um, the orbiter docking system and uh, crystal. And so right, the orbital docking system lies towards the front of the uh, payload bay. And so it has, you know, the flight deck <laughs> not too far from it. So there's always going to, you know, it, it, there could be clearance issues and, and there would be um, if, if it tried to dock at one of the radial ports. And so the idea was to bring up this docking module and stick it onto uh, the end of Crystal while Crystal's uh, in the radial configuration and add that 4.7 meters in length. And so that's the clue. 4.7 uh, mission extension of 4.7 meters is kind of a play on mission extension we usually talk about in terms of time. But in this case, it was just extending that, I guess, Crystal uh, by another uh, 4.7 meters in a, in a sense. <laughs> so that way the shuttle could dock off to the side. Yeah, in, in the same sense as... Uh, putting a radio antenna on top of a building makes it taller. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah, that's a great mm -hmm. analogy. And it's also worth noting, too, is that even if you like, so it's like, well, why go and you know spend however many millions and do a whole mission to just bring this module so you don't have to relocate Crystal to the long axis? And remember, right? Uh, we talked about the uh, the Liapa arm, right? The fact that Mir has a little arm the same way that Tiangong uh, currently has, where you can – this little arm would just grab modules and just move them from port to port around the station. And the idea was if we were going to be having a whole bunch of these shuttle Mir missions, you didn't want to have to – like what if the arm didn't work, right? You wouldn't have to – just rely on that. And it also took time and energy and electricity and all that. And so the that was the idea for why it was worth having a whole new module so the shuttle could dock uh, radially to Mir. And even so, if you look at a lot of these pictures um, in terms of clearance, it looks like a solar array is about to hit the shuttle, like when the shuttle is docked to Mir. It looks like this solar array is just inches away from about to contact the orbiter. It's I think it's pretty ridiculous. But um, it looks like it's, I mean, they knew it wasn't going to actually hit uh, the, the the space shuttle, but it looks like it's coming from Kavant too. Um, but it's uncomfortably close, uh, in, in my opinion. 
So the orbiter was pretty, uh, Atlantis was pretty empty. You know, it had the orbiter docking system at the front of the payload bay. And then uh, towards the aft end is where the docking module went. And there was nothing else there. We talked about uh, center of gravity being so important with the shuttle. And that's particularly why they needed to put the uh, the DM exactly where they did uh, to manage where the center mass is. And uh, it was held down by four latches, uh, three on uh, the sides and uh, one keel latch. And uh, something I hadn't really thought about, but uh, it was actually pressurized the whole time when they, because they integrated it, you know, into the payload bay uh, vertically uh, through the payload checkout room. And it was pressurized during ascent and orbit. And even when they were uh, basically uh, uh, berthing it and docking with it, it was, you know, it was pressurized the whole time. Right. Because they, they closed the doors on the ground. And so it's got sea level pressurization, right? Yeah, that's my understanding. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I mean, there could have been a reason why they might want to depressurize it, but I guess there really isn't one. Plus, it's free mm. air, right? <laughs> I mean, right. why not just keep it pressurized? <laughs> like that, you know? it, was, it was more of a thing I never thought about. You know, I, I, I just never really considered yeah. whether or yeah, not yeah. they pressurize or depressurize these things uh, if they're going to be sitting 40, 50 feet away from the cabin. <laughs> yeah, because they do depressurize the bay itself during ascent, and that's important, you know, for, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. But something like that, you don't have to worry about. It's not going to blow up on you. I mean, the whole point is that it can be pressurized. So I guess they could just, mm-hmm. you know, keep the pressure in there. Although maybe there's an argument to be made for, I don't know how much weight that is, you know, air. Um, it's probably like mm-hmm. more than you think, but it's maybe a couple <laughs> kilograms. Uh, and maybe, you know, they had to factor that in. So I suppose if they wanted to like really save a mass, they could depressurize it. I, I like your idea of, hey, it's got, you got, you're bringing some free air along for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now this is interesting, David, because uh, I need to talk to you about this because I can't. So, so Chris Hadfield, right? He was going to be the one using uh, Canadarm. And so he went and he, there's, there's a grapple fixture on the docking module. He grabs it. He moves it over to the orbiter docking system and hovers it 12 inches above the ODS uh, docking ring, uh, what they call the pre-install position, and then uh, got it closer to only uh, five inches above the ring. And then at that point, he then put uh, what I'd seen uh, referred to as a test mode, but he basically uh, turned off uh, all the kind of electronics to the arm and put in a, a limp position. So uh, it would just kind of be dangling. Uh, so this docking module is now dangling five inches above the uh, the, or- the ODS, the orbiter docking system ring. Then to finally complete it, uh, the the docking, they then fired uh, six of the downward facing RCS thrusters to kind of push the shuttle up and into it, and uh, and it worked, and that was all good. Um, We'll have a video. I'm sure, uh, Ben, you can make a nice little gif of this. Now, now, David, what, what I was referring to you about was that, if I remember correctly, you had done a TWISIF not that long ago, and you referenced somebody being the first Canadian to use Canadarm. And during the flight uh, press, the post-flight uh, you know, press conference that they do, which are great, if you ever watch one of these, they're always like, you know, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And they're just great. They just summarize the mission, the astronauts themselves. And Hadfield says that he was the first Canadian to use Canadarm. 
So I don't know what's going. Do you what? Do you remember what mission it was that you're talking about? Because we can at least say who made this claim first. So what I said, this was in episode four twenty five. I said, um, or I pointed out that Stephen McLean was the first Canadian to operate the Canadarm two on the ISS. So basically, Stephen McLean became the first Canadian to operate Canadarm two. That's the distinction. I see. Okay, that was STS one fifteen. All right, so that's it. All makes sense. Thank you, David. So now, so McLean and Hatfield. I guess there'll, there'll be a time when Canadarm3 on a uh, lunar outpost, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if that ever ends up flying. Um, yeah, who will be the first uh, Canadian to operate it? Yeah, so then the docking was good. Everything was nice. Uh, they actually did run into a little bit of an issue uh, where uh, it, back at the, the ODS um, uh, airlock, there was a stowage bag that was in the way from them that was preventing them from being able to open the hatch all the way. And so it's because this filled stowage bag had a couple pins and so they couldn't remove the stowage bag from the wall. And so these stuck pins were, you know, kind of messing with everything. So they figured out the easiest way to deal with it would be to just empty the contents of the bag into one of our one of their launch entry suit bags uh just for the time being. And then they kind of like, you know, squeezed the bag, I guess, you know, uh, flat against the wall and then we're able to uh open the um the, the the airlock hatch and so yeah uh so finally after some leak checks uh they were able to open the docking module uh they did an interview from the inside of docking module which is uh which is pretty cool we'll have a video of that as well in the show notes so anyway the docking module is all good they get to Mir the next day. Uh, it's an uneventful docking. Uh, it's kind of funny. If you look at the uh, ac- uh, the actual docking to Crystal itself, uh, some paint was peeling off the docking target. And so they kind of were just like, yeah, we'll have to, you know, get that fixed <laughs> at some point in the future. But, um, but yeah, everything was nominal. Uh, they transferred some stuff uh, in the press uh, kit. Flight Day 5 included a gift exchange. Um, I know that they had brought the uh, the... Uh, cosmonauts some uh, ice cream sandwiches that they uh, evidently really enjoyed um and so there was a lot of these experiments i mentioned before about testing kind of you know the structures of you know different things on orbit then they undocked um the uh the shuttle pilot uh jim halsell did the uh, fly around of mir uh they he flew around it twice so there's some really cool uh pictures uh that you know they took during those fly rounds um, and then uh, the mission kept going for another few days. They Once they were done with Mir, uh, they still did some other tests on orbit, uh, had a lot of science experiments like shuttle missions always do. And then they uh, deorbited and landed safely on flight day nine at the uh, shuttle landing facility runway 33, or 33 as the uh, pilots call it, evidently. Uh, but in any event, that uh, delivering that docking module, which was then going to be there for the rest of Mir's life and any all the future uh, shuttle dockings all took place there. And so it was a very important mission there and an important step on the way to us, you know, building the International Space Station. And so that was this week in spaceflight history. Thank you, Dennis. That was really good. So next week is the 14th to the 20th of November. David, do you have a clue for us? Uh, yes, I do. So next week in 1988, the clue is the cold wind blew but once. Very poetic. If you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon. Use the hashtag thisweeksf or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server. So good luck, everybody. Good luck. Okay, so let's do upcoming spaceflight events. So we got five events, and they're all launches. So lots of stuff going up. It looks like a lot of it 
uh, unsurprisingly, SpaceX. But what's the first SpaceX been? <laughs> right. Yeah, the first SpaceX launch is Starlink Group 627. It's flying on a Falcon 9 Block 5 out of Slick 40 at the Cape. Uh, sometime between uh, November 8th at 0400 hours UTC and November 8th at 0831 hours UTC. Then after that, on the 9th, we have the launch of a Long March 3, and that is launching an unknown payload. The window for that is 1113 UTC through 1328 UTC, and it's launching from Launch Complex 2 from the Xichang Satellite Launch Center in China. So, yep, just know that that's happening. And then also on uh, November 9th, we have uh, our second SpaceX launch um, of many. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so this will be a Falcon 9 Block 5 that will be taking Transporter 9 to sun-synchronous orbit. And so this is, of course, a rideshare. It is the, uh, it's got, uh, I can't count how many their uh, payloads there are. It includes a lot of cool ones uh, on there, including uh, GHG sat, uh, greenhouse gas sat, which I uh, particularly like and think that's pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, so uh, keep an eye out for that again on uh, Thursday, November 9th. Uh, with a window from 1847 UTC to 2023 UTC. And this will be flying out of Vandenberg uh, on the West Coast. After that is the next SpaceX launch. It is uh, Dragon uh, SPX-29, so the 29th launch in the CRS-2 contract. It's going up to ISS from Launch Complex 39A at the Cape. On Friday, November 10th at 01.28 hours UTC. You can watch the launch coverage on NASA TV as well. The launch coverage starts at 8 p.m. Uh, on Thursday, Eastern Time. Um, and the launch is scheduled in Eastern Time for uh, 8.28 p.m. You can watch the docking as well on NASA TV. That's Saturday, November 11th. At uh, 3.45 a.m. is when the coverage starts. The docking is scheduled for 5.21 a.m. A little more reasonable. Not right, right at the top of the excitement list for me on the East Coast. Too early. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's really cool is that this launch, I don't think we mentioned it last week, um, but it had previously been scheduled for 24 hours earlier. And they delayed the launch uh, by a good 24 hours because they found an NTO leak inside the Dragon. Uh, they did some investigation. They found out that one of the Draco valves was responsible, uh, the the fuel valve behind the Draco thruster, and they actually replaced the whole thruster. Uh, and that is why it's launching now on uh, Thursday, Friday, um, rather than earlier in the week. And then after that, on November 12th, we have another Falcon 9 Block 5. Um, and this is launching O3B 5 and 6 or O3B M Power 5 and 6. So, yep, just some comm sets uh, going to medium Earth orbit. The launch window for that is 2108 UTC through 2237. And it's launching from Slick 40 at the Cape. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to adieu with the show then, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Delta V, Chris S., Leon Running Man, Dino Nochi, and The Greek for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about, where you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Robit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.